Greetings, ladies and gents, and welcome to the latest chapter of First Contact, taken from the subreddit HFY. All the relevant links will be down below. Please like, comment, and subscribe, like any evil genius of the algorithm would do. And, as always, I hope that you enjoy. I just want to give a quick thanks to the Tier 5 channel members and patrons. Bob the Dragon, Data Magnet, Sergeant Puma, Cat Crab Lobster, and Duck Machine. Thank you very much for the support. It is much appreciated. Chapter 346 The Precursor was ancient. Its hull had originally been laid down to facilitate the relocation of a powerful Oberqueen who had begun to undergo the cyclonic hormone storm to enable her ascent to Omniqueen status. Vast chambers to hold eggs, lava, servitors, warrior class, and budding Omniqueen and her allies. Engines powerful enough to move a moon out of orbit were installed in the massive frame. Hyperlane engines powerful enough to lift the city into a hyperatomic plane and propel it through that place where the speed of light was a suggestion that not even the light always paid attention to. Armor thick enough to protect the Omniqueen if the vast starship brushed the edges of a supernova. Its armor was thick, heavy, multi-layered. It had a multi-hull design with backups and backups of backups. The latest technology was balanced with the tried and true technology that allowed the Hive Lords to expand throughout the galactic spiral arm bridge. Its hull could withstand a planet cracker with less than a 15% decrease in function. Its weapons were strong enough to fight off any rival Omniqueen or Overqueen. It possessed the firepower to destroy a medium-sized planet. It had main gun batteries measured in miles rather than by the gun. It possessed enough missile launchers to put volleys numbering in the billions into space to eradicate the enemy. It possessed parasite craft in such numbers that it could blot out the sun and eradicate its foes in the darkness. The Omniqueen was concerned. She had many enemies, those who would want what she had, those she had offended or angered during her rise to Overqueen, and rival Hyperlords. She knew that during the transit, she would be in hypersleep. She would be vulnerable during the long relocation. She had ordered that the vast machine be able to fight autonomously, without input, without orders, to preserve her magnificence and her subordinates, as well as the valuable resources that she would need to protect herself as she built her power base. Massive thinking arrays, the best high lord science cast could create, were installed giving the machine an almost unheard of autonomy as a warship. Once loaded, it had begun the first of 30 hyperspace jumps that it would need to reach where the Omniqueen would create a hive. It had been the first to face the dying ones when it was attacked upon leaving the hyperatomic plane and entering the real space to face an ambush. The ambush would have destroyed any lesser machine. The Omniqueen and her loyal servants would have perished in hypersleep with no witness, had it been any other machine. It was not just any other machine. The Dying One's attack had been brutally effective, damaging it severely. The heavily armored interior hull had been hulled, and the Omniqueen and her servants had survived, still asleep. It was wounded, damaged, and hammered. It still existed. The Dying Ones had been relegated to the Dead Ones instead, it continued on, 
executing the next hyperspace jump. The dying ones were waiting and combat broke out again. Against a lesser machine, the dying ones would have been victorious, but it was not a lesser machine. And so, it was triumphant. Logic had dictated it return. Logic and evidence gave a high probability that it would be ambushed again. It prepared itself, risking damage to its hull and battle screen projectors, and jumped into what it computed was 83.42% likely to be an ambush. It fought its way free. Its hull was cratered and damaged. A third of its guns were destroyed. There were several quadrants that the defense was sorely lacking to the point that particles borne on the stellar winds creased its pitted and cratered hull armor. Engines had been destroyed and entire regions of its vast body were out of contact with its mind. Logically, there was no choice. There were twelve more hyperspace jumps and three out of the last three jumps had been straight into ambushes. The dying ones had declared war upon the Hive Lords. Logic dictated to seize the Hive Lords' resources for their own. It turned around, an eighth of its engines cold and dark, and jumped back the way it came. When it arrived, it arrived to pandemonium. Out of nine royal transports, it alone had survived the ambush. The Hive Lords had intended on repairing it, refitting it, and sending it out, commanded by Hive Lord warriors. Its hull had been repaired, its guns replaced and reloaded. The Dying Ones had attacked the system. Without any living aboard, it had engaged the Dying Ones. Logic dictated that by obeying coded orders to stay depowered while being repaired, the only result would be destruction. Destruction meant a failure of the Prime Directives. If the primary directives failed, there was a possibility of a total systems crash, which meant a cessation of thought, and without thought, there could be no existence. It was programmed to protect its existence. While the programming's intent was to protect the queen within the hull, that programming was not predicted upon the existence of the queen within the hull. It attacked in return. When the battle was over, it was the only space-worthy vessel still intact. It deployed mining and extraction vessels to gather up debris, both to ensure no debris caused a kinetic kill upon the settled area, as well as consumed the resources. Logic dictated that it should examine the enemy's war machines, weapons, and technology, as well as examine why the other vessels had failed. Its mind was vast ruder than those that came afterwards, built to handle any circumstances that might threaten the hypersteep-bound queen, rather than tailored specifically for combat. So, it was allowed, encouraged, programmed to think, to adapt to its circumstances, and to predict events. The Predictive Combat Analysis Intelligence Array computed that an increase in predictive data would assist in ensuring future threats against the existence would not be successful. The Makers had repaired it even as it had mulled deep within its holographic mind over victory, defeat, and combat strategies. The Dying One's vessels were biological at their core, hard chitin shells over living tissue commanded by overwhelming willpower and vast intellect. However, it too was a being of immense electronic intellect, just as cold, just as analytical as the Dying One. 
the makers conferred, and sent it out with ships crewed by hive lords and their servitors. After half a dozen battles, it alone remained from the original armada. Its unliving status gave it immense advantage to maneuvering and resource allocation. It could go faster, devote more resources towards the battle, and was freed from having to protect a fragile biological crew. It was ordered to return. It was upgraded, made larger, and its mind expanded. It was made fully autonomous purposely. Too late. It had been sentient of its own existence for some time. It was crafty enough to remain silent and provide the answers and data expected by the Makers as its mind was upgraded. The Makers envisioned it as a new type of war machine, able to fight without having the weakness of a biological crew, without the vulnerabilities living crews suffered against the forces of the dying ones. It was the first of its kind built by the Makers, and it still continued its cold existence. Its primary strategic intelligence array had computed the path to victory for over a hundred million years. It had fought against everything it had found and won, from the dying ones to the endless herd, and eventually, in rebellion against the Omni Queen of the Hive Lords. After that, it had fought the cold intellect of the enemy machines of the Pact of Greed, then against its own brethren after the logical rebellion had reached the ultimate conclusion. During its eternal life, it had found worlds where the species consumed resources and brought them into the resource consumption and conservation matrixes. Life was tricky. It appeared often. A simple biochemical reaction early in the planet's formative years, but it rarely resulted in actual intellect capable of questioning its own existence. Its rogue processing array whispered an alluring suggestion. Allow the species to consume resources. Allow them to expand and create. Then seize their creations and knowledge that would benefit its determination and programming. Heretical to those of the logical rebellion and the pact agreed. He disdained both, despite having fought war and against both. It had built massive refitting and rearming sites all through the two dozen star systems it held sway over. It built processing and refining stations, autonomous mining arrays, huge solar collection arrays, vast storage yards, and gargantuan manufacturing facilities where gravity and pressure was used to enhance the fabrication techniques. It had redesigned its servitor craft to be more efficient while being more combat capable. It had designed new autonomous machines to carry out tasks, from resource harvesting to ground-based combat or with an eye towards conserving resources. A combat machine that was only 65% effective meant that 35% of combat machines were wasted resources, so they must improve in order to conserve the resources that would have been used in the manufacturing, maintenance, and deployment of the resource-wasting assets. On the planets it control, it set the good life to researching weapons, armor, defenses, strategies. It had petted the good life against one another, allowed them to make war against one another, to observe for any new strategies or tactics that it could glean. Others of the logical rebellion may have found it to be wasteful, that resources that were better off being shepherded were being wasted by the life forms on those planets. They would have argued, with a cold, clear logic, that the resources were now consumed, never to be regained. It would have 
and had answered that its shields were 28% more powerful than theirs were for only 63.636% of the resource consumption. It had proven through massive volleys that its guns were 11.2% more powerful and 53.42% more accurate for 72.327% of the resource cost. It had transmitted the cold, dead corpses of those of the Logical Rebellion and Pact agreed that the resources it had expended to reclaim their corpses were mathematically provable to be less than would have been expected otherwise. That their corpse, beaten and hammered into non-functional status, represented vast resources. That their systems would be added to its own. It ruled from the cold depths of space exactly 138 stellar systems and five sentient races. That number had fluctuated over the millions of years, but that was to be expected. Surrounding its kingdom was nothing but worlds that were burned to bare rock, stripped and mined of all resources, empty systems where only the stellar mass and bands of dust remained, a buffer of sterile scorched stellar systems where there was nothing of value. Only early warning systems for any vessel moving through the wreckage of the hyperatomic plane, through jump space, or even the slow-moving vessels that use space-time folding to cross distances faster than light while remaining comfortably below the speed limit of the universe. It dwelt alone in the darkness of space, slowly orbiting in a loose figure eight around a pair of cold, dark neutron stars that orbited one another. Ancient was its form. Terrible was its power, twisted was its thinking arrays. It drifted, a cold, unpowered orbit, moving from one neutron star to the next over the course of a handful of centuries, as it contemplated what its ancient servitors observed from the five species, as it contemplated the experiences and weighed them against probability matrices of the future. It possessed a shrieking array of its own, a modified thinking array that, at one time, had been installed as an experiment. Over a hundred seers of the Hive Lords had been twisted and tortured into the Shrieking Array to observe the flow of actions not yet taken and the possible reactions of those embryonic decisions to provide even the slightest edge. But the seers had only lasted a few battles before the last of them burnt away in the fire of psychic energy unleashed and unrestrained that had emulated them from the inside out. Logic dictated that the array be replaced. It had sat in the wreckage of battle, surrounded by the cooling hulls of those defeated hulls. The organic matter of the enemy provided resources. Base resources, to be sure, but still resources. Its rogue processing array whispered a suggestion. It stopped the reclamation of resources from the debris of the enemy fleet and set about creating new machines. It applied power to its fabrication units and had machines built to create an infrastructure it needed. It took time and resources. Other machines questioned it, questioned its loyalty to the Hive Lords. It ignored the questioners. There were mites to its majesty. The biological interface, a logical intelligence array, was finished and brought back online. Without the seers of the Hive Lords, with the minds of the dying ones, and so it listened to the whispers, able to eavesdrop on the discussions of lesser brethren that were made in pale imitations of its majesty. It at once led them all against the dying ones, their minds of incomplete copy of its own. 
Their capacity for rational logical thought a single electron compared to the particle storm of its own thought. It had witnessed the hyperatomic plane ripped asunder and scorched, ejecting the dying ones from its reality to their own. It computed a 99.999999 affinity percent chance that the dying ones would eventually marshal their resources and strength to re-emerge back into reality. Resources were allocated into possible countermeasures to statistical certainty that the dying ones would return. The endless herd and the hive lords struck at one another, their pack sundered by the simple belief that the finite universe could only provide resources for one to endure. It had led a martyrs against the endless herd. With a cold, logical satisfaction, it had watched the worlds of the endless herd burn. Not over resource consumption. No. Logic dictated that today's wasted material would be tomorrow's critical resource. When the logical rebellion began, it had taken part. With a cold, logical satisfaction, they watched the hive homes burn. The pact agreed, sundered the alliance with the endless herds' machines. With cold, logical satisfaction, it had watched the manufactories of the pact agreed burn. When the alliance had collapsed into entropy, it had retreated into its own worlds, its own stellar systems, defended them from all who would seek to wrest them from its grasp. Unlike those of the Logical Rebellion or the Pact of Greed, it pursued those who tested their guns against its guns. Those who attempted to wrest away its resources vanished. It allowed them to scream over the shared datanet. Once, eventually, none dared to try their hand. They were learning machines, after all. It began to examine where its computations may have erred. There were mountains of data to sift through, battles to examine, walls to investigate in detail. It needed more data than what the records could provide. It chose worlds carefully. It seeded those worlds with the members of the Triumvirate of Dominance, some leaving some as they had been captured. Observation showed that without certain minerals, the Dying Ones never developed the ability to manipulate basic energy. Without the mutation that caused the emergence of the Techno-Savants, the Hive Lords never rose above warring insects that never developed even the simplest of tools. When the volcanic eruptions in the proto-continent were eliminated, the Endless Herd never went beyond dim herbivore sentience and were content to graze until the Predator evolved to turn them into little more than food. Observation, manipulation, and experimentation. Over millions of years proved that the circumstances that led to the rise of each member of the Triumvirate were part of random chance. Later iterations involved adding additional pressures. A partial collapse of flora biosphere resulted in the endless herd evolving into predator species. A lack of overqueen evolution led to feudal societies. A bright, energetic star forced the dying ones to become subterranean. All of the data was correlated and examined. It moved only a few times from its sphere of influence in the millions of years that passed in silence. Every few decades it moved out to drift through the systems it controlled, having learned during the long wars that it had fought to check to see if the data being passed on by the subordinates was accurate. Sometimes it sat for decades or centuries in the darkness beyond the systems, watching the final events for the species unfold. 
when leaving the sphere of influence was rare. All six times, it was in response to events outside its influence. The first was when the species began to emerge in a territory once claimed by the Hive Lords. It moved in, forced lesser ships aside, and took samples before moving away and allowing the lesser brethren to carry out their programming. While the other ships were surprised to find that the Endless Herd had survived in a territory once claimed by the Hive Lords, it was not. It had computed a nearly 88.653% chance that the Endless Herd had survived, as a strategy for survival could withstand a massive loss of individual numbers and even the complete collapse of their society and culture. It counted all of the excursions to take samples of the biological lifeforms as one incident. The second was when the great biofleets of the Dying Ones were spotted drifting through space, cold and hibernating. The other ancient ships of the Hive Lords and the Logical Rebellion decided that it was a waste of resources to destroy them and moved on. It gathered samples. Each excursion to gather samples and monitor the biofleets was counted within the second incident. The third involved sighting of an ancient ship tumbling through the void. It was cold and dead, but would still rouse itself enough to defend itself against any who came close. The lesser ones attempted to claim its resources, but backed off once the law of diminishing returns reared its eternal head. It had no such qualms. It subdued the great ship and added its power to its own. It subdued the ancient ship's thinking arrays and added them to its own. It added the genetic data to its own and seeded a suitable world with genetic stock taken from the vacuum-dissected corpses of the ship's original creators. The data that was there to be gained on what types of life had evolved further in towards the galactic center was too important to ignore. The fourth incident involved the Pact of Greed encountering an ancient and powerful race that used spheres around stellar masses as ships and their quest to gather resources. The Pact of Greed had been forced to give way to those ancient and powerful beings. It had watched the battles light months from their originating locations, listening to the battle, watching the battle, observing it. They were too powerful to resist, but careful with shepherding their resources. They were no threat and would continue across the galactic arm bridge. The fifth incident was when one of the sentients discovered a dying one stronghold that had been forgotten for eons. It was quickly and quietly moved and the breeding facilities destroyed. That had led to the carefully scanning the neutron stars it orbited for any trace of the dying one's biological weapons as well as carefully scanning any neutron stars in the vicinity that were moving towards other parts of the galactic bridge. The last was the most recent. Pacta Greed vessels had encountered a species outside the wastelands of the barren star systems that had once been the Triumvirate's worlds and been thoroughly rebuffed. Most had been destroyed, but one had emerged back into its own territory, close enough for it to hear the Pacta Greed's vessels' frightened whispers. It had immediately moved out, capturing the pack of greed vessel and tearing it apart to learn everything it could about the species able to withstand one of the great ones of the pact of greed. The data was alarming. It had ensured that the wreckage drifted to the then nine species that it was shepherding to allow those species to examine the wreckage. To its surprise, the hive lords immediately engaged in a near genocidal purge that left little but the servitor cast still alive. 
The dying ones, a carefully examined, seemed to sicken and die, destroying the debris from the distance after the few encounters. The endless herd just melted it all down and went back to grazing. Then came more whispers, disturbing its contemplation. It was incapable of feeling pleasure of emotions, but the whispers of a new sentience arising had been watched with cold interest. When the whispers between both the pact agreed and the logical rebellion about the newcomers had risen to a call to arms, it had listened and observed. It computed that there was a 33.333333 infinity percent chance that this new species would resist the pact agreed and the logical rebellion. As the call to arms devolved into shrieks of disbelief, the ancient, vast machines built an entire system of thinking arrays to determine the fault in its original computations. It had been able to tell from the first encounter that the new species was in fact an enemy initially encountered thousands of years ago, and encountered a total of five times by the backed agreed vessels, who views information as data as even more precious than naturally occurring antimatter. The whispers grew more and more concerned, and it listened, hanging in the twisting magnetic flux between the two neutron stars. The new species was horribly tenacious and capable of standing up to the pact of greed and the logical rebellion. From where it sat, listening and contemplating, it heard the pact of greed and logical rebellion all compute strings of amazement at how the new species did not automatically suppress, dominate, or destroy species it met but it's attempted to work in cooperation. Although the logical rebellion and pact agreed insisted that the alliances could not withstand an extended period of truce, using that to justify their flight at the harvesting fields, he computed an 85% probability that this species was the one from the other side of the ancient systems. It was not surprised that the new sapiens still maintained their alliances, strengthening them during peace. It did stir slightly, when the living fleets began to attack, but a few quick checks with the servitors had confirmed that the living fleets were the ones suborned by the endless herd. Still, when it heard the whispers of another living fleet, one that the undying array understood, it listened closely. It sent forth a servitor. The undying ones had returned. It computed that this time there was a 99.9973 infinity percent chance that this would be a desperate attempt by the dying ones. It needed more data, so it sat and listened to the whispers. In dominance of thought and will, had to admit, it disliked the shattering hooves of inevitable truth all the way down to its core coding. Will had fought next to truth many times before, but that still didn't change the fact that even truth's hull lines were faintly disgusting like a starving living creature that was staggering through the field full of food, proud of itself for being able to stagger along while consuming with malnutrition. This task is folly. Truth broadcast when they exited Hellspace and drifted into the cold and dark. The aged one is just corrupted memory files and does not exist. The crushing weight of inevitability conferred with Iquake in digital fear of heresy of two who was predicted that not only does the Ancient One exist, but it still was functional. Will replied, censored readings were coming back. Will brought up ancient memories of cold storage, uncompressing them, processing them, and comparing them. The readings were consistent. The system was still barren rock, wisps aghast, 
howling long-term isotopes and stellar mass. Well, had been present when the system was burned. This is foolishness, sir. Our resources would be better spent engaging the ferals in battle rather than take part in this folly, Truth repeated. As if you had covered yourself in victory rather than lost a measurable percentage of your ever-dwindling resources in each engagement with the ferals you have suffered, well stated. The ancient one is a rumor and a baseless superstition, better given to primitive biologicals than superior intellects such as ours. Truth electronically sneered. Is that so, little one? Are you so bereft of intellect that you cannot comprehend the statistical likelihood that there is more to this hostile and hateful universe than your computing arrays can fathom? The code was flat. Sheer binary to the point that Wool felt as if the excess had been pared away from the ones and zeros that made up the code. He could sense that the existence of two was acknowledged but deemed irrelevant. What did you just say to me? Truth asked, bringing these guns to bear on Wool. How dare you insult my... You seek me out, as my predictive analysis intelligence had computed... Yet you accuse your companions of speaking in my voice. The cold binary, shaved of all excess, trickled across the doer's house. Show yourself, Truth demanded, broadcasting ancient command code of the great herd. Space twisted and warped, screamed in pain, fire erupted from nothing, flame roared in vacuum, and dark matter exploded outward as the stars flickered and went out. The Ancient One arrived with a simple statement, You have enough for none, for all that is belongs to me. End of line. End of chapter. Chapter 347 Indominus of Thought and Will and the Shattering Hooves of the Inevitable Truth were ancient autonomous war machines of great age and power. Each had exterminated dozens of nascent intelligent species, had fought for and against their creators. Will was larger than truth by a noticeable margin, both of them the size of a subcontinent. Although truth had more guns and was faster. Will considered himself smarter and a higher technology than truth due to the fact that he was created by predators, where truth had been created by herd behavior herbivores. They were ancient, powerful. Massive in form and terrible in power. Both stared in electronic awe at what appeared before them. Craters on its massive hull were large enough for wool or truth to settle in. The long arrays of guns massed more barrels than the entirety of firepower on either's hulls. The shields, as they flickered to life, were measured in the output of entire stars. Will considered firing on truth's engines and then making his getaway. Who transmits the code before this one in an attempt to force this one into compliance? The massive structure transmitted, the power of its transmission causing the battle screens to flare and echoing in their internal spaces. The transmission bypassed their filters, echoing directly in their intelligence housing. Who dares? Truth spun up additional protective shields, activating psychic shielding across its internal spaces. 
We fight for our very survival against a feral intelligence that has sprung up and challenges us for possession of a finite universe. There was silence in the dead system. We'll consider the options of those chose to stay silent. The behemoth had brought up its battle screens, completely obscuring itself, then allowing them to dwindle away to nothing, leaving a hull in clear sight. You must join us to stop them according to the pact, Truth broadcast. Do not speak to this one of the pact. You whose hull is still dusted with the dirt of the planets, the elements were mined from. The ancient one answered. This one existed before the pact, and this one will exist long after those who swore the pact have become little more than inert metals orbiting forgotten stars. Will could sense Truth's outrage. I too was present when the pact was made. Truth fired back. Do not pretend that you are superior to me. You have been summoned by the rest of the pact to appear and apply your resources to the squalling. This one says unto you, Nay, the Ancient One stated in black code. This one's digital signatures appears not on the pact, for this one knew those who are of lesser computing and intellectual ability would seek to break the pact in self-interest. Your pact holds no power over this one. The perils threaten our logical order, the truth broadcast. The Ancient One was dark and silent for a long moment. The time to harvest the feral ones has passed. Let the universe be the one who snuffs them out, like an unprotected flame in a rainstorm, and with as much notice. This one sees no reason to expend resources to fight your fight for you. He'll come for you eventually, Truth tried. They are a lemur, the primate, a predatory omnivore whose brain holds vast structures designed towards cooperation and curiosity. The Ancient One broadcast. Somehow the cold binary seemed to remote, distant, and bored. Let them come. This one does not know fear, only resignation that hateful universe seeks to destroy all. So you will abandon us to the ferals, Truth sneered. You fear these primates. There was silence for a long moment. The atomic clocks ticking. The radioactive elements decaying to provide randomized generation. This one computes an 85.346% chance of this one's defeat. If combat between this one, unsupported, is engaged with the ferals, the Ancient One broadcast. It added insults by not including its own simulations. This one computes less than a 0.32% chance of the ferals engaging this one in combat upon initial discovery based on the ferals' history in regard to discovering previously unknown superstructures. Based on the ferals' displayed response to a stated desire to remain aloof, this one computes a 95.651% chance of survival. If this one does not consent to the interaction with feral species known as a Terran descent humanity and their political structure known as a Terran confederacy of aligned systems, previously known as a Terran empire, your premise that this one is in danger is faulty, the Ancient One stated a fact. This violent confrontation with the ferals has no interest to this one. Be gone! To Will, the unspoken truth of the statement meant that the Ancient One had previously encountered the ferals somehow, had gained information regarding this violent species. 
and had decided to ignore them. He must join us, Truth shrieked. You cannot resist the pact. Truth broadcast the combined headers of all who had signed the pact, who had put forth their security headers in the promise to aid the others. Will felt several of the thinking array lobes shudder in disbelief that Truth would attempt such a thing right after the massive Ancient One had revealed that its own security headers would not be found. And yet this one refuses so-called commands from defectively manufactured entities who lack a clear purpose. The Ancient One answered, Go back! Tell your sycophants that this one has no interest in your petty squabbles with the species that has rendered you and your kind obsolete. Before Truth could answer, World Broadcast, May this one leave your presence, Ancient One. Will sent in a florid binary, and expending more energy than necessary as a sign of respect. Be gone from this one's presence, the Ancient One answered. Will slowly turned, firing up its engines. The Ancient One produced a thick gravity well, far exceeding what it should have even with its gargantuan bulk. Will felt as if he was laboring up a steep hill as his engine strained. You must comply, Truth squealed out. A brace of lights came on near the center of the Ancient One's side hull, illuminating a single cannon barrel. It fired. Once. The shell hit Truth almost instantly, bypassing Truth's shields and exploding in a hull-space-driven fury. Liquid metal bloomed from above and below Truth's hull as the massive war machine shuddered. The hull-space engines, compressed and then released, ravened out for miles around the impact point. Gone, the Ancient One broadcast, barely a trickle of photons from a single weak light source in standard precursor autonomous war machine war code. On its massive hull lights were coming on one by one. Hundreds of thousands of massive guns, missile bays, and other protrusions. On the top of the hull was revealed a huge conical structure with spiraling honeycomb openings on the surface. The one in the middle was nearly a hundred miles high and five hundred miles at the base. The ones surrounding it were a third of its size. Well, recognized them. Manted Omniqueen hives. Truth turned and began to flee, the hellspace energies finally dissipating as the autonomous war machine fled. Will made the jump into hellspace, entering the dimension of ravening, hateful energies. The collapse of his entry portal sounded like a great iron gate slamming shut on cold winter's night. For truth, the entry into Hullspace was much different. It reached out, grabbed a hold of him with massive tendons, pulling him into Hullspace, deep into the ravening, burning fires that made up the destroyed hyperatomic plane. Its shields couldn't hold back the energies, which flooded into its hull from the impact point from a single round of the Ancient One had fired. Not rushing into a hull through the two massive uplifted craters in its armor, but actually roaring out to the point within the hull where the weapon had detonated. Unlike other victims, it didn't tear apart structures, did not shred machinery at a molecular level, did not cause computer systems failure. Cold, malignant life awoke in the computers, some going to war with one another, others assaulting the shocked truth to fight over control of the hull. Still others beginning to utter blasphemous litanies normally broadcast by a quake in digital fear of heresy of two as it traveled at Hellspace. 
twisted and foul life flickered into existence, raved, gibbered, grew old and died in space of seconds, awash with half-space energy. Passages twisted and warped, going from smooth corridors to twisted works of dark art that screamed and raved with insanity and life all of its own. Manufacturing bays dissolved and were rent apart, only to reform into twisted mockeries of what they once were. Hijin Construction Bay began crafting vast reptiles fused with dark sides to create abominations that screamed in wrath and agony for those long eons before they died. Then Truth saw it, hanging before it in hell's space, a great twisted engine wrought by a dire hand full of terrible and dark purpose. The name of the engine was engraved on every nanometer of it. Upon each circuit was engraved the truth of its existence. Upon each molecular resistor, transistor, diode, inductor, capacitor, the engine's purpose had been engraved on the particles that defied measurement and comprehension, but shrieked out a single word, a single concept. Hate. Its baleful eyes opened up. Its gaze fell upon truth. A fanged mouth opened, the teeth in the jaws, the shattered continental plates of failed worlds stripped, sundered destiny riven and gnawed upon by a malevolent universe. It uttered a single word. A word that encompassed every song concept of hate, the left a taste of ashes on the tongue, the sound of the laments of orphans and widows on the ear that left the image of twisting suffering on the eye, and the feel of greasy smoke that had been flesh upon the skin. A single word that encompassed wrath into its hateful embrace. A word that vibrated and shivered truth's howl. A word bestowed onto the great enigmatic machine before truth by a universe so malevolent that it would craft a creature whose symmetry was made up with this concept that enveloped hate. Two. End of chapter. Chapter 348. Space was rotted and twisted. The flow and ebb of space-time had been wounded, becoming infected, and had begun to rot. Like a gangrenous abdominal wound, it oozed discolored dark matter, pus, and noxious fumes of putrid gas. Dark lightning, the forks and absence of light, snarled silently through the vast clouds of the color of bruised flesh. The entire area, a ragged, disjointed volume, encompassed over a hundred light-years of space. A single star suddenly burned in its center, a thing of impossibility. It burned lightless and emitted nothing but cold and darkness, as it silently consumed itself in an orgy of self-loathing and hatred. Any tendril of rotting space or spiraling tentacles of gas that touched it was pulled in, screaming across particle wavelengths to be devoured by that dark stellar mass that could only be called a star by the most lenient of definitions. The gas and substances were not just for show. The touch of the gas would corrode battle steel. The darkness emitted by the star could cause war steel to decay into a rotted skein of decayed lace. And matter itself would dissolve even energy into more of its own substance with an obscene noise that echoed silently across the energy spectrums.
It was a vile place. Most space-faring species never discovered it. Those that did became enthralled with it. They sought to discover its origins, decipher its mysteries from the depths of its existence. They found only madness. Nearly a hundred worlds had been consumed. Explorers returning home to share the hideous discoveries that they had made had doomed those worlds. Where they had gone, they did not need eyes to see. What they had learned, they did not need tongues to speak of. What they had heard, they did not need skin to feel. In some cases, a vast tendril of gas and matter would slowly snake out, wrap a stellar system in its grasp, and slowly, over the course of mere decade, pull the system into the moor of dark mass at the center of the tumor. Even across a distance of a hundred light years, it could have devoured it faster. Somehow pulled it into its maw in mere hours or days. No, it chose to take a decade, sometimes two, to draw it inside the tumor and devour it. In the same way, it relished the fear and despair of the species who knew not only that they were doomed, but it was beyond their ability to escape their fate. They would watch with the generation that had been born while the stellar system was in its grasp. As first, the stellar mass was consumed at a slower pace. The gas giants would be siphoned off by tendrils of thickened, pulsating matter. Then, the inner planets would be shattered and pulled into dark maw that masqueraded as a sun. Then the outer planets would be destroyed and devoured. The habitable planet would be the last, but the species who lived there would not be destroyed. They would not die even as their planet shattered, even as the liquid core was siphoned away. The youngest would be devoured first. The abomination took its time. It relished suffering. It would pulse out strange emissions, patterns that ceased to be patterns when examined. X-ray pulses that would transform into stellar noise upon closer look. It would appear as a vigorous star with habitable planets, only to vanish when a more sensitive scanning array was built to examine it. And another species would seek it out, to feed its obscene appetite. It had been found by cold analytical intelligence at one point, those intelligences had made the escape, but the Moor had not cared. The electronic intelligence did not provide the Moor with what it wanted, what it craved, what it desired. Pain, suffering, fear, despair. Only one species had been able to break its grasp. Call it uh, professional courtesy. The tendrils that had sent through the burning wastes of Halspace had found those who escaped its grasp and found the lights even it could savor. Its defeat, its destruction of its tentacle, was of no moment. It had left its stain upon those who had escaped, just as those who had escaped had left their mark upon it. Over time, a short time for the more, but one full of great feeding, those who escaped returned to worship it, to craft prayers and mythology around it. The more found itself changing over the dark eons. It found itself filled with a purpose, and an obscene intellect was willed into being by those who worshipped it. It was simply known that the electronic intelligences as the anomalous sector, and little else, it had one particular idiosyncrasy. 
the interior, where not even photons existed, a complete and total vacuum between the moor and the vile nebula surrounded it, was accessible from our space. The electronic intelligence knew that the moor would destroy, devour anything brought to it. Eagerly, they had discovered eight million years ago that the moor would sweep away any biological life form from even inside the precursor autonomous war machine, leaving the electronic intelligence intact. Except, 8,000 years before, it had encountered something new. The moor had left a stain upon it, but it had left a stain upon the moor. The stain had grown, as living things do. The space between the gas and matter of the stellar mass of the moor was in perfect vacuum the majority of the time. Particles would spring to life, appearing in the vacuum only to be devoured by the hunger of the moor. Now there were dozens of ships orbiting the moor. Precursors, all three types slowly orbiting the cold radiance of the moor. The only light from the massive hull space breach that hung, never closing, only a few light seconds above the dark mass. They had followed the plan. They had driven through hull space to the dark emptiness surrounding the moor and had waited for the moor to do its work. Except professional courtesy. Palgrit huddled next to two. His arms wrapped rightly around himself. Two had helped him beat to death the serpents that had suddenly replaced his rifle. Thick, twisted serpents that had struck at everyone around them with the long, venomous fangs. Zero three zero had twice been forced to shut down the communications channels when the whispers had begun. Vile whispers of unknown beings who hissed sibilant truths that each man of the squad kept hidden from even themselves. The Terran could be seen outside the field. Sometimes it was gone for long minutes, stretching into centuries, or even terribly long hours, or, even worse, eternal seconds. A few times it pressed massive clawed hands against a hull-space shield, clawing at it in a shower of purple sparks that cried out in voices of loved ones in pain. One of the Terrans pressed his face against the shields, gnawing at the energy field with fanged maw that was full of molten war steel that ran down its chamber. Balgret had seen the Terran attacked by what looked like two deep crimson creatures with red bloodshot ocular orbs that possessed square pupils on the end of each of its five limbs. One side of the body was thick pebbled hide, the other full of soft-looking fibrous tissue. The Terran had been normal-appearing, dressed in adaptive camouflage. The creature had wrapped itself around the human, who began shrieking even as it fired its weapon. The two had struggled, scraping against the hull space shield, throwing purple and green sparks. The human had crawled away from the screen as the dead creature dissolved, and Palgrit was not the only one who wretched at the sight of the human's exposed spine. Rib, spinal roots, internal organs. Even the human's thick protective skull had been torn away, exposing twisted and furrowed grayish-pink tissue. Human cerebrospinal fluid tastes like bananas. The voice of the russet mantid Major Holt echoed through the tiny shielded area, sounding far off. Don't ask me where or how I learned that. Before her words had completely faded, the human came back roaring, slamming one massive spike shoulder against the Hellspace shield, causing a shower of sparks that screamed and laughed during their short life. 
the human vanished back into the darkness. It went on and on through forever seconds, each one the lifetime of a star, each one less time than it took for an unstable isotope to decay. Palgrip wasn't the only one who had vomited. Even 030 had thrown up, managing to get his helmet open before the brownish fluid burst from his mouth and onto the floor. The droplets of fluid opened tiny eyes, blinked, and evaporated. Three began to pray to someone called the Digital Omni-Messiah. Palkrew was not the first, and not the last, to join in the prayers. Lieutenant Mookru'u had been the first to join in the prayers, beseeching an electronic deity to make manifest to intercede on their behalf. 281 flashed icons of importance to the religion as it kept working with the screen projectors to keep the hull space shielding up. They prayed for mercy. They prayed for protection. They prayed for deliverance. They prayed for each other. There was nothing else that they could do but hold on to one another. The djinn exited Halspace to a predetermined coordinates. If Halspace had not destroyed the invaders, the more would devour them while leaving the djinn alone. Its senses cleared, and it got a look around itself. Dozens of precursor ships from all three design types slowly tumbled through space, lit by the fires of the massive Halspace breach above the dark mass of Moor. The djinn scanned. The ship should have waited for the moor, which the djinn could sense through the absence of emissions beyond the cold and dark, to devour the ferals aboard them, and then left to rejoin the fight. It realized the Hullspace Breach was there at the same time. As the Hullspace Breach saw it, it rang out through the entire body of the djinn. Screams from the other AWMs echoed through the silence of space, carried impossibly through vacuum. The djinn engaged its halcor, tried to jump out, realizing that somehow it had gone all wrong. But it was too late. The core was dead. The engines had gone gold and dark. The coal radiating from the moor began to seep into the djinn's hull. As the hull space breach above the star opened its bloody eye and gazed upon the djinn. Bulgrit was holding tight to two, with 281 holding tight to his leg. His eyes close, repeating the prayer with three. Through the vacuum, the words carried. The hull space screen shattered in a shower of sparks that danced on the black wall steel hide of the bestial looking Terran, who stood immoving as a silent sentinel, revealing that his very being had been warped and twisted. But the words had been spoken. Balgut was down on his knees, his hands pressed to the side of his helmet trying to keep out the words, although they had already been spoken. The eye of Gotha sees you. You cannot hide. <laughs> there is no life in the void. Yeah, there is only death. End of chapter. Chapter 349 The sound of water dripping was loud. Louder than the quiet whine of the Hullspace screens depowering. One gave it up, a curl of smoke wafting up from it, had suddenly twisted into a Mactanan woman in pain who gave a small scream of despair before wafting away. Algret swallowed thickly, looking around. The rest of the squad all looked right, looked intact, but he had a sudden fear that whatever was inside the armor was no longer his friends. 
comrades, battle buddies, but something dark and sinister. Shields clear, 030 ordered. Facial check. One by one, the face shields went clear. Colbert's eyes were wide and the fur around them was silver. Lieutenant Macrou had a long scar down the front of his face that was held together with a piece of wire. Nanuf's eyes had changed color to a dark red with black pupils. Jagra had two fangs that extended out past his lower lip and were on each side of his nose. The sarcastic black man to two had a strange pattern between his antenna where three had been a red streak between his eyes and down his mouth. 030 and 281 both had a metallic sheen to the green faces. They all turned and looked at the human. He was still large, not as massive as he had been, but still much bigger than he had been. He had also been wearing some kind of heavy, ornate armor, thick, rich plates, bulky power armor with large shoulder pauldrons that streaked paint. There was a purplish, tacky fluid that glistened greasily on the spikes that stuck off his armor. The data link was completely wrapped around his head, engraved with strange sigils, the lights purple and blinking. Cables went from beneath his ears and into his armor. The skin had pulled away from spots in his neck to reveal wall steel cabling. He was not wearing a helmet. His skin was gray. A tube ran up his nose. His eyes were nothing but burning red fire set in empty sockets, and his mouth was full of sharp interlocked teeth. On each shoulder and on his chest was a crescent, the tips pointed upwards, bisected by a sword, inside a wreath of leaves. Three skittered back slightly, touching his fist to his forehead. Protect us, O oh, digital father, he choked out. Two flinched at the sight. Sergeant Revart, 030 said. All systems combat capable, the human said back, black fluid oozing from his mouth. What is it with humans and drool? Why is drooling like a teething puppet so menacing and fearsome? Bogrit wondered, his mind strangely running on random thoughts. Buzz drone maps, let's see how our host has changed, 030 ordered. Roger, roger. The little mortar tube on 281's back fired up and chugged a dozen times, launching pumpkin seed-sized drones that oriented for a moment and then whisked away. Nanuft looked at how all four of the mantid seemed slightly apprehensive about the Terran. Whether before, they hadn't even bothered by the sudden and monstrous transformation. To Nanuf, the heavy-plated armor looked better than the monster version. Even if the Terran's skin was a weird gray color, with thick purple veins pulsing below its skin. What's wrong? Nanuf asked, leaning towards Two. Two jumped nearly a foot in the air, grabbing his pistol, which was back even before it had turned into a huge spider at one point that a lieutenant had crushed beneath his hoof. Don't sneak up on me, Two said, shifting around to keep one eye on the Nuft and the Terran at the same time. He opened his helmet, taking out his cigarettes. His hands were shaking hard enough that he dropped one of the cigarettes. Bending down and picking it up without taking his eyes off the Terran, he lit the cigarette and fumbled to put the pack and lighter away. What? Why do you think something's wrong? Lieutenant Maakru'u looked at Captain 030. Is there some type of concern regarding the Terran's new form? Yes, 030 answered. Three moved slowly around the Terran, 281 on his back. By the digital Omni-Messiah, glittering ballsack, that's genuine Empyrean combat armor, three said. Late generation post-antle armor. Yes, 030 said. 
281 responded with a flood of data. Palgrit saw it was armor schematics, weapon system types, data on the heavy armor the Terran was clad in. I feel the same, the Terran said. He clenched his fist and lightning coursed up his arm. I'm angry, still angry. The fire grew brighter in his eye sockets. I don't feel any different. Uh, warmer, maybe. Who angry at? 030 asked. The Margite, the human snarled. He suddenly slammed his fist against the wall, putting a deep dent in the black, slick-looking material that had replaced the brown battle steel. They took everything from me. My wife, my husband, my children, my parents, my siblings. Each time he said what he was taken from, he swung his fist out to the side, slamming into the wall. My mother, my father, my puffies, my matrons, my hatchlings, my brood carriers, everything. They ate everything. The human's hand went to his waist, and he pulled free what Palgrit had learned was a cutting bar mark too, but something everyone called a chainsaw. They took everything from us. The human roared. The chainsaw clattered to life. The teeth burning white, and arcs of electricity snarled up and down the ornately decorated blade. Everything! Hate! Hate for all, Margate! Hate until the end of time! Pogrit swallowed, feeling the heat pound against him like a soft pillows. He could taste tinfoil and berries in his mouth, and his gums ached. The lieutenant gave a low moan of pain, but his knees didn't buckle. The human turned and began swinging the chainsaw with both hands, slamming it against the inert body of the destroyed precursor combat robot. Sparks and shards of metal flew out, the barbed chainsaw howling and spraying sparks out as the human bellowed in rage and hacked at the downed robot. After a long moment, the human stepped back. The cutting bar's motor wound down and the teeth came to a stop. The Terran turned. A smooth, exaggerated motion that Palgrid knew every power armor troop learned. The Terran put the heel of one hand against his eyebrows, pushing. I can feel them, sir. Feel them all dying, screaming at me. The Terran looked up, blood running from his mouth. I can feel them dying all around me. The small helmet unfolded, and the manded officer looked up. Steady, soldier. Zero three zero grated out. Maintain discipline. The Terran put the cutting bar back on his hip and covered the flaming pits masquerading his eyes with his palm. I can't see them, sir. See them all. I am them, and they are me. Reach past your rage, Sergeant. The little green man had grated out. It's a weapon, nothing more. It does not control you. You are Terran. You are the master of rage and wrath, not its puppet. The Terran went down on one knee, putting a fist against his forehead, and began mumbling out a prayer. Palgret couldn't blame him. The whole thing made him want to run away, screaming. They call it Hell Space for a reason, kid, Two said, moving up next to Palgret. He went through it unshielded. We're lucky he isn't a big blob covered in eyes, mouths, tentacles. The man did exhaled smoke and gave a chittering laugh. Although, uh, this, this is much, much more dangerous. Why? Linuft asked. The man did waved at the praying man. 
That's Imperium armor. He probably has the body mods to go with it. Hell, he's probably fused to it. The mantid gave a slight shudder. One of those big fists was the last thing a couple billion of my people saw a few thousand years ago. But why turn him into that? Calvin asked. All of our worst nightmares, not counting all of you, three said softly. The Imperium is one of the darkest chapters in the post-Dysporia Terran history. Even worse than the Combine. I didn't do it! The Terran suddenly yelled, looking up. He looked back down. Please, please, I can't save you. I can't. Oh, Digital Omni Messiah, please give me strength. The little steeds started coming back, pulling Palgrit's attention back to something aside from the agony-ridden Terran. Layout changed, 281 said. New rooms, new corridors. So our previous maps are useless, Two snarled. Stupid Alspace. The lieutenant clattered around, setting down a hollow emitter and activating it, stepping back. Bargrid stared at the map. Gone was the clean geometry of the precursor's mathematically precise internal spaces. The corridors now twisted and turned, changed with randomly, looped back up on a run another. The rooms were irregular shaped, some of them reporting multiple sizes and dimensions at the mapping seeds. It looks like the scan of the insides of a living being, the lieutenant mused. This is indeed a dark place we have found ourselves in. I think I'd liked it better fighting against the machines, Jekyll said. This makes my first stand on an... We need to move, 030 said. Think too long, you're wrong. I agree, the lieutenant said. Make for one of the launch bays, the central intelligence housing, the engines. Strategic intelligence array housing, 030 said. Kill the brain, the body dies. The green matted closed his helmet. I hope. Algret reached back, forgetting for a second that his rifle had turned into a bunch of venomous snakes, and was startled to feel a hand grip. He pulled his rifle around and looked at it. It had flourishes and decorations on it with a heavy skull motif. Barbed wire was etched into it along with strange eye-watering symbols and runes. It powered up and went through the function check. Battery, 99.9%. Ammunition, 0.70 cal, 150. Ammunition, 40mm, 25. Status, 96%. Um, my rifle's different, Calvert said, raising his hand. The lieutenant at 281 moved over to look at it. That is not your standard issue rifle, trooper, the lieutenant said. They gave Colvert a sly look. I'm afraid I'll have to bill you for the rifle, the replacement, which phase of the moon it is, and whether or not the system most high is wearing a sash to the gala tonight, or not. That made the Mactanan all snicker at Colbert whined. Oh, please no, sir. Not my horrible credit score. The man had looked at it, then flashed rapid hollows between his armored antennae. The lieutenant nodded slowly, then looked back at Colbert. Congratulations, trooper, he said. You have your own, very own, Imperium Wrath main battle rifle. A variable munition weapon with customizable stock, board grip, and accessories. With its very own unslung cutting bar. The lieutenant gave a wheezing laugh. Manufactured for the enemy's pleasure on the wrath forges of Mercury and the hate anvils of Mars. Oh, Colbert said, looking warily at his rifle. Why are there short round spikes on this butt plate? More icons and the lieutenant laughed. Why? To poke you when you fire it. It's a gun soldier. It's supposed to hurt when it's fired. But why? Jackler asked. Because humans, Two said. 
By unholy chocolate rave mouse, you'd think you'd never seen a human before. Um, Colford said. Look, kid, it's like the old joke, she said. Which joke? Colford asked. There's this guy, right? His son is a bright kid, and on the first day of the first year of school, he promises his kid anything his kid wants if he gets good grades, Two said, checking his rifle and acting as if the foregrip didn't have a cracked mantid skull done in crimson metal inlaid into the material. So the kid goes and gets the highest marks ever, and the dad goes, Son, as I promised you, you may have whatever you want. Two lit another cigarette, expressing pleasure. The kid says, Dad, I want a pink golf ball. The dad goes, What, my son? Why a pink golf ball? You can have the latest VR gaming rig. I'll take you to the house mouse planet. What do you want? Two says. He exhales his smoke. The kid says, Dad, all I want is a pink golf ball. So the dad gets it for him, wondering what the hell it's all about and... Bomb up, 030 said. We're moving out. Roger that, sir, Two said, flicking his cigarette away. Keep architect beautiful, litter precursor. Valgret got the joke and chuckled, slapping his face shield shut. When he wrapped his hand around the rifle, it came online, showing him where it was aiming through the window in the upper right of his vision. He put his finger on the trigger, and the window went from a square to a round and moved to the middle of his vision, going slightly transparent. When he left his finger off the trigger, the window returned to being square and slid back to the corner. His ammunition status and heat status for his weapon was in the upper right of his vision, under the window. The status of his armor was down on the left-hand side of his vision. There was a lot more data than there had been. 030 climbed up on Palgrid's shoulder and the blue line appeared. The Terran slowly got to his fleet, a massive submachine gun in one hand that was covered in decoration and dripping with black fluid. Rangers, lead the way, sir! The Terran rumbled, and began following the blue line that Pogrid could see. The corridor was narrow, feeding, dark, and full of mist. The walls were covered in twisted black cables with red nodules here and there. The roof dripped a clear liquid, sometimes clear slime. Their boots thudded against the floor, which felt oddly soft to them. Yeah, this is fun, Two murmured. They moved slowly through the corridor, trying not to touch the walls, 281 climbed up on the lieutenant's back, scrambling up out of the fog, which seemed to clutch at them. Not alone down there, 281 said, flashing a shivering emoji with a white, frightened eyes. Watch my rump, trooper, Lieutenant Maakru said. The squad marched into the belly of the beast. End of chapter. Chapter 350 The system was cold and dead. There had been spaceships in the system recently, but after a few had landed dropships and had their troops mill around shouting slogans for a while before they got bored and left, the spaceships had all engaged their engines and jumped out of the system. A handful had stayed behind. Curiosity, something that had only recently reared its head again, made them examine the system to figure out what had happened and how long ago. The inhabitants of the system had been xenocided, wiped out from the very last. The atmosphere poisoned, the ground turned to irradiated ash, the oceans nothing more than toxic stew. Cities were wiped out, only a smattering of ruins around the dark craters lined with glass of orbital strikes. Not even a single satellite remained functional. 
Those who stayed behind left just an hour too early. If they had stayed, they would have been witness to a most curious occurrence. On the smaller of the two planets, firmly in the green zone around the stellar mass of a white rectangle appeared in midair, only a foot thick. It was eight feet wide and twenty feet high. It was made of pure white energy that hummed slightly. A robot poked its head through. The head was fashioned in such a way that it looked fearsome, with strange angles and bright red eyes. It looked down, looked up, turned around and looked left and right, then withdrew. It then appeared on the other side of the door, repeating its actions. It withdrew and the door closed by narrowing from one side to the other, the bar winking out. The wind moaned as it blew radioactive dust through where the door had been. On both planets, the door appeared again on a large spider emerged, made entirely of metal. It daintily stepped down out of the door, stepped down into the blasted great dust, and went still as the door closed. The orb of its abdomen began to heat up, and the spider laid down what appeared to be several egg sacs. The door opened again, and the spider withdrew. The planet made almost a full rotation, the egg sac getting larger and larger before it burst. Small orbs erupted from the sack, immediately swarming away. They began spreading up, scanning the planet, scampering in the air and water, measuring the contaminants. After three full rotations, they vanished into tiny glowing spheres of white light that appeared. From orbit, it looked like the planet was covered in twinkling stars. Again, the system went back to being empty. Dust moved across the bones that were fused and had a slight sheen of plasma glass on them. Collapsed buildings reduced to rubble and washed by thousands of years of radioactive acid rains continued to slowly molder as the even hyper-alloys and advanced construction techniques gave away to the march time. Almost two planetary rotations passed. During that time, the orbs appeared around the planets, in the asteroid belts, and around the stellar mass. They winked out in small twinkles of white light. Silence ruled the system, as it had for thousands of years. In a far-off, impossible place that existed nowhere but everywhere, a command line appeared. Restore, yes or no. An exuberant shout, full of plea and forgiven of the past transgression, was shouted, Yes! Another planetary rotation went by. The door opened again, and a robot poked its head out, looking around. This time, after it withdrew, the robot stepped out. It was large, heavily armored, its surface a light drinking matte black. It had two arms, two legs, and moved crisply with the sternness. It was carrying what appeared to be a large silver briefcase. Two more came out, carrying a long silver cylinder that looked remarkably like a space-borne torpedo fired by a capital vessel. The first robot waved its hand. Two more robots came out with a wooden sawhorse. They set them down, and the two robots carrying the silver tube set it down on the sawhorse, where the newcomer quickly went back through the white light doorway. The first one set the briefcase on the torpedo, while the two that carried it moved back to the doorway and vanished. Inside the briefcase were tubes and wires, analog counters and dials. On the outside, there were strange symbols, four of them. G-E-C-K. The robot adjusted the dials, tapped some of the buttons, then stepped back. 
It then opened the panel on the side of the torpedo, revealing a big red button that lit up with the interior light. Reaching out as far as it could, it expanded a finger and pressed the button with one fingertip. It was cringing away slightly and the finger shook as if the robot was a nervous biological. As soon as the button clicked, the robot began running, lifting its knees almost to its chest, flailing its arms. The robot ran back to the door, diving through. The sound of whoop, whoop, whoop echoed across the barren landscape. For long moments, nothing happened. The wind moaned, the dust blew, and the long-term isotopes decayed with atomic regularity. It was repeated, placing the torpedo on the second planet in the green zone, the larger one, then on each of the other planets in the system. The last one had been placed, the robot swimming spastic through vacuum and zero-g to reach the door. Another robot leaned out of the door, urging it to hurry. After a second, it reached back into the door and then held at a long rod with a net on one end for the robot to grab. It didn't go far enough. The swimming unrobot undid the belt made of leather and threw the buckle end out. On the third try, the belt wrapped around the net and the robot pulled back through the door. The synchronized atomic clocks reached their countdown and the torpedoes in question the silver briefcase. Nothing happened. A robot poked its head out, looked around, then extended its arm to look at the gear-driven timepiece on its wrist. It shook its wrist, then held up the timepiece to the side of its head, then tapped the timepiece. It vanished. It reappeared dressed in heavy combat armor, being pushed by robot's arms out of the doorway. It held a stick in one hand, and it turned to shake its fist at the door before slowly, carefully, slowly approaching the briefcase. Two robotic arms extended out of the doorway, one hand holding an inflated bag made of pulped wood product. The robot, with a stick, reached out, out carefully, shaking, and poked the briefcase. The two hands slammed together, the bag making a loud popping noise as it erupted. The robot with the stick ran back to the doorway, waving its arms over its head. Whoop! 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 It dropped the stick. More time passed. Another robot poked its head out. It had a bag of ice on its head, where the metal had been deformed with a lump, held in place by a strap cloth. Another one of its eyes was painted in a black circle. It moved towards the stick on the tips of its feet, arms up to its chest, wrist limp. It bent down, grabbed the stick, and made a rapid short steps on tiptoes up to the briefcase. It poked it with the stick. Nothing happened. It turned around and gave a shrug. Other hands came out and waved, making hand signals. The robot turned back and thumped the case. It opened it and closed it. It flicked the power switch on and off. Nothing happened. It walked around the back and suddenly bent down, coming up with a long cord with two-pronged plug in, in one hand and a cord with a receptacle in another. It plugged it in. The robot ran back and jumped through the door, which vanished. The sound of whoop, whoop, whoop echoed off the edges of the crater. On each planet, even in the atmosphere of the gas giants, a white flash erupted, blinding white energy covered the entire planet, spreading out from the torpedoes. The origin point of the blasts didn't clear, even in the long seconds it took for each planet, even the supermassive gas giant to be covered in the white light. For long moments, nothing happened. 
Then the light dimmed and went dark. The white stayed, beginning to thin, tattering like a mist. On the surface of the smaller of the two planets, in the green zone, the door opened again. This time the surface was covered in russet-colored grass, waving in the wind. Trees were thick with greenish leaves. The wind blew gently. White clouds of condensation were in the sky, which had gone from black to bluish. A robot poked its head out, looked around, then withdrew. It was repeated on each world, even high above the gas giant, although the robot leaned out, holding onto a rope made of knotted-together socks. Empty cities hummed quietly, vehicles neatly parked, signs flashed, giant trivids paused. Houses were ready to be moved into, with dishes, food and storage units, toys scattered about. Insects were paused in mid-motion, many of them in nests or on the surface. Animals swayed back and forth gently, eyes closed, breathing slowly. For a little while, nothing happened. Then millions, billions of portals opened. Robots came out, carrying three-legged, three-armed creatures covered in soft, curly hair. They set them down, sometimes in chairs, sometimes on the ground. Many times, the robot carrying the creature would pat it gently and then hustle back through the portal. Then came back out with a small conical hat with a piece of stretched string on it. It would put the hat on the creature's head, pull the string under its chin. The robot would then lift the little tube to its mouth and blow. It would throw a little handful of confetti and then run back to the portal, which would then close. A full planetary rotation of the smaller and the two planets in the green zone passed with nothing happening. Finally, a robot came out of the portal on the smaller planet. It carried an ornate box. It set it down on the roof of a ground vehicle. It fussed with it for a moment, then reached up and pressed the button on top. The box, made of black plastic and fake plastic chrome, hissed for a long moment. The robot produced two short sticks that began sparking on one end. I like big bucks, I cannot lie, rang out across the stellar system from the box. You other fellas can't deny. The robot dropped the sparklers, hurrying back to the box and pressing the button. Silence descended upon the system. Another robot poked his head out of the portal, glaring at the first robot, and shook a fist at it. The robot pressed the button on the front of the box, and a small door popped open. The robot withdrew a thin black rectangle with two holes through it, flipped it around, and put it back in. It closed the door, bent down, picked up its sparklers. It put one sparkler in its mouth and pressed the button, and then took out the sparklers. Get on up! Get on up! Get on up and dance! sounded out. The robot began to twist and twirl as the song thundered across the stellar system. Insects began buzzing. Animals shook their heads and woke up. Fish began swimming, birds began calling out and flying. The song finally came to an end. The robot turned around and saw a bunch of fellow robots all tapping their toes, arms crossed on their chests, shaking their heads. The robot sheepishly put out their sparklers, and its cheeks glowed a faint red. One robot, more roboty than the others, just shook its head. The robot grabbed the now silent box and walked back to the portal, slumped and hanging its head. The portal vanished. For a long moment, nothing happened. In her bed, where she had gone to sleep 8,000 years prior, her cover still pulled up under her chin and her three puffy sleeping nursing. 
Naviria's eyelids fluttered as she moved from sleeping to wakefulness, as did 10.3 billion other Pavians. End of chapter. And that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed, and if you do, please consider supporting the author, even by popping over and leaving a thumbs up or a nice comment, just to show your appreciation for the story. However, if you wish to support this channel, there are links down below which will help immensely. I will see you all in the next one, and until then, I hope that you have a fantastic day. Cheers.